Welcome to CFO 4.0, the future of finance. The CFO role is changing rapidly, moving from cost controller to strategic visionary. And with every change comes opportunity. We are here to help you take advantage of this transition, to win at work, drive your career forwards, and lead with confidence. Join Hannah Monroe, Managing Director of ITAS, a financial transformation consultancy, as she interviews key experts to give you real-world advice and guidance on how to transform your processes, people, and data. Welcome to CFO 4.0, the future of finance. So hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of CFO 4.0. So with me is a um, a second time joiner, Michael Ryan. So for those of you who don't remember, he did a cracking episode all when we talk about all about transformation. And, and that's exactly the topic that we're going to talk about again today. So Michael is a trans- financial transformation consultant. He, he actually heads up the Financial Transformation Magazine. And if you haven't checked it out, I really would. Um, but one of the things we were just chatting with, um, chatting together, um, and we thought that it would be great to have a regular spot or um, series on this podcast just to, to share knowledge and share what we are working on and you know things that we've learned over the years. So thank you so much for, for agreeing to be part of the podcast. And thank you even more, Michael, for, for agreeing to do it on a regular basis. No problem at all. I enjoyed the last one so much. No problem whatsoever doing the little one. <laughs> had to had to get a second dose. So, yep. um, and I think one of the topics, you know, we were mulling over topics for today's session, and I think one of the really interesting conversations I have a lot of people is the difference between what is transformation and what is software implementation, right? And I, and for me, they are fundamentally two very different things. So, but before I talk about my view, Michael, what's your thoughts on the subject? Um, well, I think actually one of the blogs I was writing recently on the website focuses around the fact that one of the top three things on the CFO agenda is automation. I'm actually sure that every single CFO in the country is sick to the back teeth of being told he requires, he or she requires to automate whatever system they've got in finance, which automatically says to you that transformation is, oh, it's changed with software. So we're going to have to bring in the robots, the AI, the machine learning. Automatically, that's the result. But it's not. And I'm tired of telling people that actually there is at least two decent steps before that where you have to assess where you're at and decide, well, what exactly is my problem? What's my challenge? What am I trying to fix here? And do I require software? Or is it a people issue? Is it a cultural issue? Is it just how we're set up and organized in order to operate? Is, is that what the challenge is? So I actually never believe that the immediate answer to anything is to throw, throw software at us. Uh, so I fundamentally fact there's a big difference between a software implementation, which is potentially a solution, and a transformation. And a transformation in simple terms can be applied to yourself. As I'm now knocking on at the grand old age of 51, I'd say I've gone through the midlife transformation process about two and a, two and a half times. And uh, it's as simple as when you look in a mirror, when you go up in the morning, do you need to change? Do I need a piece of software for that? No, I don't. I need a little bit of willpower when it comes to the amount of Guinness I might consume and so on and so forth. A transformation is the adoption of new culture, new style, new habits, new ways of working, new approach. It's it's a new mindset is the phrase that everybody likes to use these days. And we still haven't touched software and I've been rambling for the last two minutes. 
So there's a firm difference, in my opinion, between implementing software and transforming a finance function or transforming a business and completely transforming how the people think. And actually, it's far more interesting and far more exciting when you're running teams and you're setting them challenges where they go, why on earth did he ask us to do that? Why on earth did he ask us to do I came here to go to work. Well, of course you're coming here to go to work. That doesn't mean I can't challenge your head in order to give you something more to think about. Um, so yeah, fundamentally, the two things are completely different. And I think it's really interesting your comment there about um, talking about automation. And one of the things mm-hmm. I think people forget is that there's no point automating a bad process, mm-hmm. right? Because a bad process, whether it's automated or not, is still a bad process. Yeah. And I I talk about those three components of any transformation piece, which is people, process, technology, and and I and actually I'm becoming to think more and more. It's also data. Yeah. Right. We sometimes forget data in that that suite of transformation pieces and that and, and I have a, this conversation a lot and people get that if you put bad data into system, you're gonna get bad out bad data out. But what they don't they they also forget is that if you put bad processes and, and then layer some great technology on top of it, you're still gonna have bad processes out of the end of it, which I find fascinating. Well, uh, to be honest with you, due to the gamut of, of uh, individuals and situations that I deal with, I have the business-to-business guys coming to me going, how do we pitch to the CFO? And there's a couple of good articles in the recent magazine, which, which you can look up with regards to that. But I always think that they think that their responsibility is just to tell you that the stock answer, your stock problem is one thing. You're inefficient. You've duplicate effort. You have too many people. Uh, there's too many handoffs. It's like there's, there's a row of things that they can quote and go, and here the software is the answer. I'm <laughs> going, well, hold on just a second. What's the size and shape of the finance function in the first place as to whether this is necessary? What can we do about it long before we need to put in the software? Um, and these things, they, they, just, they just aren't taught about. So you've got one group coming at it going, the software is the solution. And the other group not thinking enough around, well, what's my actual problem in the first place? You know? But in terms of uh, the process, so I always break it down to, so, so the classic, as you said yourself, is you don't automate a bad process. Now, the business sales guy comes along and he goes, fix your processes because he doesn't want to do the hard piece. The hard piece is to fix the process. Anybody can rock up and go, here's the software. What do you think it is? Isn't it deadly? And someone goes, it still won't work because the procurement guys won't talk to the accounts payable people or accounts receivable can't talk to the frontline sales team or whatever, all of these things. And so people think, well, the panacea is the software, and the software comes trundling along, and it doesn't deliver what you want, and then there's an after-action or the legendary lessons learned report, which all could be fixed from the start, and we went, well, let's actually fully understand and put some context around the problem, and then see, well, what can we do to get a process here that works? Because one of my colleagues at the moment is, is implementing a piece of software for someone, and he says, we'll finally get it over the line, and they still want to fix the process. They will be doing the same bad process in a very nice piece of kit, <laughs> which just doesn't answer that question. I love that. They could be doing this. <laughs> it's going to look pretty while they do it in a bad way, but it's it's going to look beautiful. Yes, it's like putting an old man in a, in a better car. It's, it's, I still don't drive any better. <laughs> oh dear. No, I, I still persist. If I had a better car, I'd definitely drive better. So <laughs> I'm not going to let you have that one. But it is very, very true. And what I've, and this is one thing I will say to people when they're looking at implementing any software is take this as an opportunity to go, how does your software work well? Because yeah. there is a tendency for people to try and want the software to completely change to fit their process. Oh, yes. And often, 
And I, I just find it fascinating. And I'm like, but the purpose of buying the software and making this change is because your current way of working isn't working for you. Yeah. So why would I just lift that and put it into a piece of technology? Well, the, the, to be honest, the simple reason is, is a human reason. It's the line of least resistance. So basically, the CFO and finance director, whoever's responsible for buying the software, is not by their very nature the best person to lead transformational behavioral change across their own mm. department plus somebody else's. So they generally think that the software is the panacea. We buy the software, we go to all the pain that goes with that, put together the business case, get approval for it, spend it, go through the whole implementation process and then wonder why we don't get all the benefits we want. And, and it is just due to that fact that to change how a process is performed is actually quite a challenge. Well, some of the things that I found in doing this is that when you really seriously look under the bonnet of what's wrong with the process in the first place, you can eliminate the need for the software. So you just got to watch that. This is why I always tell people, if you invest the first month in working out what's wrong, proven what's wrong, then you can come up with a list of solutions. But the moment you start saying to somebody, top of the CFO agenda is they need to automate. So why don't I have AI and machine learning in my business? And they go, here's three of them. Do you want one? And they go, yeah, oh, that must be brilliant. So I'll buy one of them. And it still doesn't solve the problem. You know, people skip. I was thinking about this the other day, because obviously the top three are people process technology will be quoted in every conversation that goes on under the sun regards to finance. What's the, what's, what's the one that you can pull the lever of the best, the fastest, if you want to optimize or fix finance, right? So technology is a bit more linear, it's a bit more straight line. We can pick out a range of solutions and we can go through a vendor selection exercise. It doesn't necessarily make the process better. If we're in a situation where the people are the problem, we need to involve the HR team in how we review performance, maybe make one or two of them redundant as a result of performance issues or whatever, um, or we have to change. But to change people, to change the organizational structure of a finance function and get it rocking so that it works, that takes time. It's easier to go through a linear path of, I think I need technology, so let's crack on with buying one, and then I feel like I'm a busy fool doing something. But if you all stopped at the one in the middle, which is the process, which the people must interact with, and there isn't a finance function in the world that doesn't operate a process, at least partially on a system, it's the bit in the middle that you need to focus on. If you focus on the bit in the middle, you can avoid necessarily having to do the other two. Your process is the most important. Everybody skips it. Everybody's interpretation of doing the process is, do I have to do desktop procedures? How do I actually match out a process? What is it like when I start using Visio? It's like, oh God, this isn't hard. Describe your job. Describe how the document that you're responsible for flows, whether it's a supplier invoice or a customer invoice, or whether you're managing the fixed asset register or whatever it is. Describe it. Now, take a good step backwards, look at it on the wall, and tell me that you think that's perfect. If your life depended upon what's on that wall, <laughs> and not the business's success, but your life, would you still rock with this? And they look at me, no, we wouldn't. <laughs> right, okay, cool. Now, would you like to do something about it before we start spending a couple of million quid on a new ERP system? To do that requires, in my opinion, might be right, might be wrong, um, you must, first of all, already know what a finance process should do. This helps. I see people try to transform finance who aren't finance people, and it's not necessarily a help because it's almost like it's done to a rote or to a formula. But if you know straight away what size and shape a particular team is supposed to be, you know when that team is underperforming, when the process is inefficient, you know when there's savings in it, yeah, and there's opportunities in it, and you can tell that. 
And generally, you can get it as soon as you ask the team to stand up and go, explain what you do. And they all look at you and you go, oh, do I really have to? Do I have to draw this here? No, just stand up in front of me and tell me what you do. Draw it on the board, you know? And then let's look at it together. And then the second missing part of that is always context. So when we do process analysis for, for any company, we can map the process. It still doesn't give you the answer because it hasn't effectively asked you the question. You need to add numbers around it. So for example, we're looking at an AP process. Is there 20 people, 25 people involved in the process? Could it process 10,000 invoices a year, 150,000, 250,000? Which bit's in the system? Which bit's not in the system? Which bit relies upon Johnny down in a manufacturing site down in Silverton? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Then you know where you've got a problem and you can pick out the traffic light pain points. You go, okay, okay, so now I've found the pain point. Does this warrant me buying one of these great big shiny new cars? Possibly not. Maybe we can fix it together. And this part is skipped over. And one of the reasons it's skipped over is the person who runs the finance team itself, the business as usual leader, is generally the last person to challenge their own teams. You need some form of external view. If somebody comes in and goes, ah, to be honest with you, it doesn't look quite right. Maybe we'll take a little bit of a deeper dive, one of the legendary deeper dives, and we'll take a look at it. Yeah. You need somebody to prompt you. When you're doing it yourself, you don't do it. One, because for the very simple human reason, you don't want to upset your own staff. You look at them every day. So you always need an external view on whether a process is effectively performing. The number of people who tell me the process works, okay, the process works, maybe 55 people involved in it. It works because you throw so many people out, that's great. From the business's perspective, do you think the process works? Possibly not. I mean, try and meet somewhere in the middle. So the process gets skipped. And actually, it's the one that if I was CEO and somebody came to me saying, I want to buy a piece of software for the finance team. And I go, right, explain to me what the process is that's the problem. Give me all the volumes and the context. Tell me where the pain point is and tell me exactly what spending 600 grand is going to solve. And if you can't do that, go back and develop your business case for me. Or actually, if you wouldn't mind just doing your own job and go back and fixing it because it's a process issue, crack on. It is really interesting. I think there's a couple of interesting points you said, and I think the first thing is that I, you know, that whole piece around they spend people spend so much time gathering requirements, right? And requirements are important, but when I get a requirements document and they've sent me through this like massive Excel spreadsheet that's got like 20 billion tabs and 500 lines on each with you know the instant little requirement, but nobody's actually sent me a process map. I find that really interesting. So that's my first shout. If you're doing requirements, share, make sure before you start going out to to speak to vendors, make sure that you can actually tell people what your process is and that you know what your process looks like and is it mapped out. That's my first sort of top tip because it's so when I go in and I and I see this list of requirements, some of them are actually once you get to the end of the process, some of them are actually non-necessary. So you've made people, you've made bad selections and discounted people at the beginning of a process because you've not actually, like you said at the beginning, understood the problem that you're solving, which I find super interesting. So again, it's a key piece. I think the second piece you made that was, again, point that you made that's really interesting was about how 
financial BAs, the people, financial analysts and, you know, people that analyze financial processes, it's a lot harder, I think, for a normal BA to actually come into financial processes and understand what finance does. So I think that's an interesting piece. And I, and I always wondered why it is. Like I've seen, I've met some brilliant BAs in the past, but they've always had some kind of exposure to finance that makes them really, really good. Uh, generally what happens in most of the companies I go into, they'll, if I go in to transform as me and they give me their staff in order to do this, um, which we're all now allowed to do again after IR35 is about to be repealed. Thank God. <laughs> you generally find that the BA is sitting in an IT team or some form of project management team. And if they're ever sent anywhere near finance, the finance people bamboozle them by basically telling them how complicated and how difficult their process is so that they lose interest and go away. So I always think that there's there's a huge value in, in understanding what the teams are supposed to do before you go anywhere near process mapping them. Um, I, think that, I think that's important. I do think finance needs to take a bit more responsibility. There's an awful lot of finance teams that have finance system managers and technical people within their teams in order to generally produce month-end or quarter-end reports, make sure something comes out of the system which doesn't function particularly well and gives it to the senior accountant in a manner which does. But there's not enough of them that, as a um, starting building block, map the processes of the, of the unit that they're responsible for. They don't tend to do that until someone else has come along to do a transformation project and ask them, do you have any desktop procedures or any processes? And they go, oh, no. I was like, what have you been doing since you were given the job? That should like, be like step one. If you, don't, if you haven't mapped out the estate, you're going to support. <laughs> I'm laughing, right? Because I literally have this conversation all the time. It's why I actually did a financial transformation live on how to map your processes. And I've started sending it to people that I'm working with going, can we just get some process maps before we start implementing, please? Because it's, and um, you know, I think it's so important. And it's not just about implementing technology. You don't need, you don't have to have a process map in place to do that. But it's a way of discussing and communicating with the wider team, both inside and out of finance for me, and showing what and how you do things. Because if you're not got that and you can't put it in front of people, then they're not going to follow the process that you've put out there because there's so much wiggle room for them to go elsewhere, in my personal opinion. And there's there's a bit... So generally, I challenge any of the teams that I'm given, can you at least show me a high-level process map of what you're responsible for? And it's not necessarily ingrained into accountants that they should do this. Um, certainly mm-hmm. in the bigger functions, there's plenty of Lean Six Sigma sections which, which would do it for them. But I think, to be honest with you, the finance team should do it themselves and be able to express their own process to anybody who walks in and asks them. I think there's too much of a piecemeal approach. So, for example, if you're running a team and one of the supervisors or manager comes up to you and says, we have a problem here, I need some extra temps, or I need this, and I go, well, you mind putting that in context, really, to be perfectly honest with you. You have an extra problem here, why? Because Johnny and Jim are off sick today, so I need to give you extra staff just to solve this problem for a day or so. Like, show me the, show me the breadth of your process, show me the size and shape of it, put some context on it. Um, and then we can map the detail from there. But when I'm, when I'm running a large finance shared service center and I look at it and I go, I want the organization structure in my back pocket on one page and that's the end of it. And I want the three main processes. I know what the high level process is. And then the team can go off and document 55 desktop procedures as required, no problem. And that's it. It's almost like an extra job that gets done when the BAU pieces ease off a bit. But I always to run the place required a high level process of each of the processes we're responsible for. Otherwise, I can't say 
what's come into my responsibility, what's left my responsibility, or what's hidden under somebody's desk. One of the best examples I ever had a long time ago was one of the first uh, transition programs I ran for Argos was um, based up in Manchester, actually, against the uh, home shopping division, I think it was. And basically, we were transitioning work from Manchester down to head office down in Milton Keynes, and they didn't, to a great extent, use a system. It was an awful lot of cases of other knowledge is in my head. And one of the famous cases we ended up with by the time we finished this transition was we had missed these particular invoices. We were after, we were asking Scott, how did you miss this, you know? And uh, it's because your man kept the invoices in a box, box under his desk. I'm like, okay, I've torn the system apart. I've asked you about your process that God calls me. And you tell me you've something in your desk or under your desk that I didn't know about. So we're trying to top up the gross margin at the end of the month and I go, there's something missing. Oh, he says, well, maybe the Nike invoices were the answer. It's the Nike invoice. <laughs> So, so if, you, if you can't throw a ring around your problem, no hope of managing it properly. It's going to bite you and it's going to push you rather than you control. And I think that's, again, you know, I think it's for me, it's super important that you just don't just go in and document it and go, oh, look, I've made this pretty process map. Isn't it gorgeous? For me, there's a, there's a fundamental, right, let's validate this process piece. You know, actually sitting and finding out if they are hiding those uh, invoices in a box <laughs> under a desk somewhere as you do it and they haven't put it on the process. Because people, a lot of, the, one of the things I do find is that people often know where a process is falling down. Yes. They don't always want to put it on the wall or on the digital process map. So it doesn't get talked about. But actually, when you validate, you find all sorts of extra steps, extra spreadsheets that somebody's you know, keep, I'm just keeping track of that because I need to reconcile this with that. And then I put it here and I was like, I'm like, yeah, that's brilliant, but that needs to go on the process because it's a step and it's taking time. It's something you're doing. So that's the, again, it's one of the big things that I tell, I ask people to do is actually, have you, have you walked through, has somebody sat and watched somebody actually follow this process? Because I, it's always interesting what pops out. Oh, oh if, if you can actually reach a stage. And not, I mean, an awful lot of the finance functions I deal with, they require transforming, so they're nowhere near this stage. But when you get them to the stage where they've got their high-level process and the team understands it, so that they understand what role they play across finance and in the wider business, which is, you know, switches them on. And then you've got the more detailed piece that backs it up, different levels, level one, two, three, four, five, whatever you like, down to desktop procedures, um, that you get somebody from a different department with the project management VA uh, mindset and you go, this is what they say their process is. Now find me, find me the holes in it and see how well they're going. Great. Yeah, bar of chocolate for every hole yeah. you find. Yeah. Yeah. Find me a hole before somebody else does. But it is true. And I also find it's interesting. So a couple of things I find interesting just to try. So obviously walking it through, but walking it through with multiple individuals within the same team is always really interesting. Because I don't know about you, but what, you know, especially if the they've had a lot of turnover or people have been in role for a while, there can be like a divergence of process. And I and I wonder how many people actually step back and go, how and, and check to say, am I actually doing this according to that process, even when they have process map according to the process that we've actually mapped out? Yeah. And like I mean, if you think of the conversation, the conversation's gone on for the last 10 minutes. We've pretty much reached the conclusion that unless you nail somebody's foot to the floor and offer them money, they're not going to voluntarily give you a high-level process map of their, t- of their uh, operation. 
They haven't done the detailed stuff, so they're probably nowhere near desktop procedures. They haven't done anybody else challenging it when they've done that. So pretty much without even asking the question, that particular team and its performance has never been benchmarked. So whoever is responsible for it has no way of defending that, yeah, the company gets banged for its book here. You've <laughs> no way of knowing. You haven't established ground zero to compare it to something else. Yeah. And then you it's impossible then. <laughs> we, go, we, we are very much in our soapboxes today. I apologize to all our listeners, but this is the problem, right? You get two transformation consultants. Well, what were the, hold on. What, what were the other questions? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This, uh, yeah. So, so we're going to call this the soapbox episode. Mm-hmm. It's Hannah and Michael yeah. on their soapbox talking it's, about it's, You know, it's the podcast that's been missing. <laughs> Well, you know, and I think, you know, if we summarize what we've just talked about, because there's there's a couple of things that we also want to talk about, and I've got a feeling we'll run out of time if we're not careful. But I think if we come back and go sort of what are our top tips for a thing for processes and getting those inside, I think firstly, make sure you've got it documented is one we pretty much both agree on. I love your concept of the high level process and then breaking down into more detailed ones. I think that's a great way to approach. Um, I think my top tips are follow it round. And, I, and like you said, any so ideally somebody that's not in finance because they'll they'll ask the why. They won't assume you're doing things for a particular reason if they've never done your function. Um, and then I and I think speaking to multiple people within the same team and checking that everyone's doing it in the same way is is something to think about. Um and then I guess alongside the ultimate yeah. test, Hannah, is just let the consultants go in and take a look at it. <laughs> yeah can they actually go through and enter it uh, yeah that's where your procedures come in versus your process there you go was paying attention michael was paying attention um but i also think things like use cases are really useful as well because you know you can go through the same process and depending on the use case yeah. do it slightly differently so i think that's always important as well to have documented what do you do about use cases do you flow them out do you have them documented what's your preferred approach now what's your interpretation of a use case (laughs) so ah there we go so use cases for me are when i look at billing right so if i'm generating emails i might have the start to end um process which is i i go through this i do that for this for i do um, I generate an invoice, I print it off, I send it to customer. But the, you know, the actual invoice itself is going to vary and the triggers might vary depending on whether it's a milestone build invoice, a subscription invoice, et cetera. So for me, that's a use case. Oh, okay. It's, a, it's a similar yeah, yeah. top level process, yeah. but I have use cases sitting underneath it. Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah. So I would have just viewed that in terms of sort of processing. <laughs> ah, there we go. Terminology. <laughs> so before you start a transformation project. So the next time I'm talking to a client, I'm going, What's the story with your use cases? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love that. So, so we, yeah, so sub processes is where you would sit that. Yeah. Now, I mean, essentially, what, what we're looking for when we capture the very top high level one is always have that in your head and know the exceptions. Yeah. And as you knock that down further down the line, you're going to arrive at your use cases, which is yes, we produce a customer invoice and we produce it in 10 different variations and we dispatch it in three different variations or by two different methods for these reasons then you always know what they are yeah love that and and exceptions is a really good point we haven't talked about those yet but <laughs> there is a tendency isn't there to design process maps according to the exceptions rather than the rule uh, i, I um, think and, and i'd have to put my hands up one of the first software implementations i did for argos about 20 years ago i think we ended up with something like uh, 17 process maps and like three of them 
were the core processes this was to do with accounts payable. There's three of them were the core processes. That's <laughs> like the rest of them were variations on a theme. And the software company that was implementing at the time, they looked at it and they went, right, they're going to put this on the board. And they went, right, okay, we've done that one, we've done that one. Right. So what's the difference between these 15 then? And when it's put up on the board and you go, uh, well, actually, there's none. <laughs> it's just <laughs> the particular document, but the process is the same. It doesn't make any difference to how we work it or how hard it is or how many of us. Right, okay, cool. So uh, it's always useful to have someone else look at your processes and go, right, okay, some of this stuff you're just adding to for the sake of adding it, you know it. Do we really need to design an actual process flow for it? Probably not. Mm. Absolutely. So, and, and I think that, that that's where I feel use cases are really, personally, I find them really useful or sub-processes, pulling those out. Um, and I think... I think every every company and every consultant, I think, has their own style with documented processes. And what? So here we go. I'm going to put you on the spot now, Michael. What are your must-haves on a process? And what? I know. Or have you got any pet hates when you see process maps? Um, to be honest, I, I the number one thing I want to know are the numbers. I want the context because for me, every single transformation of finance, the clinical part of it comes down to. The amount of resource devoted to it, the cost of the resource, the number of uh, activities that it performs, the throughput of that. So what are the documents that it's actually processing? And when you run the maths on that, how much sense does that have? Now, I don't care if I get to 55 sub-processes. I even don't care if I get to 10 or 20 exceptions. I don't care. Well, what I want to know is that top-line number. Because when I go and I look at my AP team and I see... 15 heads, 150,000 invoices a year, 75% of that's done touchless, I'm running the numbers in my head. I then go to my AR team, I see they knock out 300,000 customer invoices in a year, there's five of them. I then go look at it and go, I have a credit control of two people, so I've obviously got no problem in collecting the cash. And straight away, as I look across the gamut of finance, I go, I know which team I need to focus on. So that prioritizes, so that, that's the level at which I think about it. It's like, where do I have a problem? Where is something that's going to cause the business a problem? And where within the performance of my own team is it inefficient? And which one do I need to focus on first? That's how I view. Yeah. No, absolutely. I think that's always the, the challenge, I think, is any kind of transformation consultant is figuring out where to start first. Sometimes yeah. it's super obvious. Mm-hmm. And you kind of, you hope for those, you know, where's the burning bridge that we can start mm-hmm. with? But sometimes it's not so much. And actually picking your battles is always an interesting conversation and prioritization yeah. can be challenging sometimes. But love, you know, it's the numbers. But what I find, what I find, particularly in the bigger centers, um, teams can have a bad reputation or poor reputation for their performance. And they can be easily bed over the head because they don't have sufficient support, um, sufficient senior managerial support and so on. And what you find is they attract all the flack. But when you look under the bonnet on the other teams, there's, there's equally as many problems as well. So this comes back to the very starting point. By what mathematical means are we quantifying that there is a problem? Yeah. And that's where, like, some people will quote to me, you know, I walk into teams and someone will go, oh, to a hack it benchmark, we're brilliant. And I go, well, to be perfectly honest with you, look in the context of what you're doing for this particular business. We don't think so. So let's just break it down to brass tacks. Every single part of it comes down to the performance of the team within the context of its business before you look at anything else. Um, and that's where it's always the numbers. That's where it comes down to all the time. Um, and do you reference particular benchmarks? Are there any sort of ones that obviously you put it into context of the business, but are there any benchmarks that you go, actually, that's a good measure to, to at least consider when you're evaluating your current performance? 
Um, well, the two things I always say to people, uh, for my for my sins in my past life working for Deloitte, I was responsible for managing its finance benchmark and database of a couple of hundred different um, benchmarks, so I'm familiar with them all. Um, and we sourced them from a company called APQC. Uh, we're an American company for benchmarking. They're the same. You know, you could go to APQC, you could go to Hackett, you could go to SAP, you could go to, you know, all, all of them will produce benchmarks. The, the key part for me is just forget that for just a second. Work out your own performance uh, within your own team. So what's the cost of processing an invoice in your particular business unit or your particular country? And then the very first thing I tell everybody to do is compare that to the same team in one of the other business units or one of the other countries. And that's where you get decent debate. If you go, this is a standard industry benchmark, the very first thing somebody says back to you is, well, is it our industry? You go, yeah, okay, it's your industry. Which companies are in it in order to compile the benchmark? Well, by the very nature of it, they don't tell you. It's an industry benchmark. Well, maybe it's not represented. All right, okay. It's an argument not worth having. Okay? So top line benchmarks, of which there's about 10, you would go, I need to know that. That is what a top performing business should be capable of processing an invoice at. Now you tell me what you're processing it at, and then let's go and see what they're processing it at in Manchester and Birmingham and Glasgow. We go work out the most efficient team in your company first. And then we go, right, okay. Uh, and if that doesn't win the argument, you're like, well, I see that you're processing an invoice for four pounds when I break it down into one part of the company and you're processing it for 90 pence in another. Let's understand the reasons why and see if we can meet somewhere in the middle and save you some money. Uh, but benchmarking is a, is a conversation best won internally. Yeah, love that. Focus on your own numbers. Yeah, really interesting. Awesome. Mm-hmm. And so um, one of the topics we did say we were going to cover today is talking about the current state of financial transformation because um, obviously... Yeah. Um, the world, I say the world is going through a crazy transition. The UK in particular yeah. is having some fun right now with the economy. So mm-hmm. what, what's your view on the current state of transformation and finance's contribution to it? Okay, I will just get this off my chest. <laughs> I don't know which genius in the British government originally decided that IR35 was a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> But I would like to offer my heartfelt thanks to the fact that in the recent mini-budget, they have decided to end it. <laughs> I think they originally came up with it for highly paid um, sports and business and television personalities. I think that's the reason why they originally came up with it. Unfortunately, they then pulled in every single contractor in the finance uh, arena by default. And if you consider, right, so the big four firms, basically the way they operate, it's like, it's like the army. You get promoted at the end of the year. If you don't get promoted, you go work for one of the others. If you don't go work for one of the others, you go work on your own. There are thousands of independent contractors in the finance space and in the IT space in the UK. And I'd safely say every single one of them would take IR35 and put it on a bonfire. There is a guy who I've come across, which I will give due, due regard to, a chap called Dave Chaplin. And I think Dave Chaplin has been banging the drum to get IR35 ended since it was originally inaugurated. And I'm sure he went and held a party uh, when the mini budget was held about four weeks ago. Um, And it's people like that who took a leadership role in the finance space over and above their own jobs. Mm -hmm. I'd be going, every single contractor in the country should go, send that man a tenner. And if he goes off on his holidays with it, he earned it. He does all of it. but the way in which it was dreamt up in the first place, it destroyed the finance transformation uh, contract market. Because the very first effect it had, which obviously wasn't thought through, law of unintended consequences, everybody started going, well, we don't understand what the rules are. 
But if we don't understand what the rules are, we play it safe. So we'll stop hiring interims and only hire permanent uh, finance transformation people. Then, then the next variation on that was we'll do fixed term contracts. Now, if you go to a contractor who's responsible for their own tax affairs and all the rest of it, and you say to them, do you want to do a fixed term contract or a permanent job? And they'll be like, no, I want to do a contract. That's what I'm set up to do. Um, and as a result of this, loads of the work became fixed term contracts, which I would never touch. Or it devolved to being a permanent job, which I don't want because I run a consultancy and we work on a contract basis with clients. Um, and as far as I'm concerned, for the two years in which this has been largely in effect, it ruined the market. And the part which is probably controversial to say, but I'll say it anyway, is it dumbed down the market. Because when you go from contract day rates to convert into perms, perm salaries, that doesn't necessarily happen as a nice one-to-one -one relationship. And when you start doing it on a fixed-term contract, it most definitely doesn't. And I think that what's happened is that the finance transformation industry started to have leaders of finance transformation projects with less experience than they would have had before IR35 was implemented. And that's being nice and polite to everybody involved, but that is my opinion of the impact of that. So when somebody decided this goes, I was like, genius. Now, I don't think we can say much more than that because absolutely everything else that happened out of the mini budget, <laughs> you know, not so good for the economy in general. But anyway, parking that part of this since I'm not responsible for that. Um, your original question was, what's the state of the finance transformation market? And one of the spins I had on that was, we face into a winter. Here we are in the depths of October. It's not particularly nice out. It's cold. We've got a cost of living crisis. Um, there's people sat there going, how do I heat my home? Um, should I turn the electricity on? Should I turn this on or leave that off? All the kind of stuff. There are businesses with um, power cuts potentially hanging over their heads at some stage before we get to spring. And all of this creates uncertainty. And it's very easy to just look at that and go, well, we blame the government. We blame the decisions taken, you blame all the rest. It's very easy to do that. The finance transformation market is peopled with highly intelligent, very experienced, well-trained individuals. And what I'd love to see, which I don't see anywhere near enough of, Dave Chaplin being a, an honorable exception, and the chap who runs the um, Good Businesses Pay, I'll get, I'll get the name wrong, I think it's Trevor Corby. Sorry if I get the name wrong. Um, these guys went and said, we're going to do something for the betterment of everybody else, which, okay, it might help us, but we're going to do it. It's costing us our time. It's costing us money because they're not focusing on their own individual jobs as a result of that. Um, and they're doing it for the betterment of everybody else. So where in all the finance tra transformation industry is people doing stuff for the betterment of the ordinary workers who have to go through cost of living crisis and indeed for you know, solving some of the bigger problems. What does really happen if we have a power cut for the first time since 1979? You know, what happens? In 1979, the internet wasn't there. We didn't do month-end clothes based on a computer. You know, we did it on a ledger and a quilt. <laughs> so what are you going to do now? <laughs> so I, I don't see enough of that. I, I see that the industry itself, in my opinion, doesn't have enough peers sharing top quality content. Because mm. as I said to somebody, maths on this is simple. I'm 51. I'll retire sometime around 65 unless they remove the retirement age and I'll retire at 75. Um, and I'm not going to see all the finance companies in the UK that require someone to give them some advice or give them a hand or give them whatever. 
So I don't mind sharing it. And I share it through the magazine, I share it through the website, I share it through podcasts like this. I'm quite happy for somebody to tell me that they think I'm wrong or that they think um, they have a better opinion. Cool, by all means. But I think there's a very British approach to the industry in that people don't put forward alternative views, people don't challenge stuff, and people don't sufficiently go out on a limb to go, there's something I can actually do to benefit everybody else. And the two lads, I'd almost swear I've got their names right, Trevor Corby and Dave Chaplin, are a shining example of what the industry can do, uh, what the sector can do, on behalf of people other than themselves. And it's I think really more super of that. interesting. And I think mm-hmm. what I actually had a comment when I was, because I've obviously been doing these financial transformation lives, and I talk a lot about what we do as consultants, you know, just like, and we think of it as common sense, but a lot of people do, I think, sometimes don't think it through. But I got told that I got asked, why am I doing that? Because that's my job to do that for other people. And I'm like, because not everybody is lucky enough to be able to afford to have consultants in for weeks or months on end. They just don't. You know, we've got so many SMEs um, with part-time CFOs who've never implemented or looked at systems or haven't got that knowledge. And for me... You know, that's why I do the transformation live sessions because it's it's just one way of getting information and practice out there. No, I'm pretty sure that, you know, lots of people look at that and go, well, that's not the perfect way to design a process. I'm sure somebody's sitting there with their um, their key of all of the, the process icons <clears throat> and telling me like it's not it's not perfect. But I think as you know, as people in this transformation space, as people in finance, we need to get better at sharing what we're doing, sharing our success, sharing our failures, where have things gone wrong so that other people can benefit from that. Because that's that's the only way that the finance, the, the you know, the finance arena actually, you know, elevates and gets to do more interesting and value add conversations. Yeah, no, totally, totally. Yeah, and it's it's fascinating because I was having this conversation earlier today. Uh, with a friend of mine, and he he was complaining. Actually, he was the second person today complaining about recent government policy, but he was ranting about it. And I'm like, okay, second rant. I listened to today, great stuff. When are you actually going to tell me something positive? And he's like, how do we end up with these type of leaders? And I'm going, well, maybe we end up with those kind of political leaders because the likes of you goes into the job you've got. So now that you've got there <laughs> and you're doing reasonably well for yourself, why don't you throw something out there to help somebody else? And maybe if more people did it, the whole lot would take a snowball effect and the country would be an awful lot better place to live in. Absolutely. Yours and I think that's the food for thought for this podcast, right? We've talked a lot about the oh, process. Definitely. We've talked a lot about transformation. But given that we're coming into a really challenging few months, maybe even a few years, mm-hmm. what can we all yeah. do to help others in our industry, in our space, in our roles move yeah. forwards? So, yeah. well, thank you so much, Michael. And lovely. I, yeah, I love talking to you. It's just so easy. And I think we we, we, we both um, spend a lot of time on our soapboxes in these conversations. But thank you so much. For those that would um, that haven't um, obviously um, checked out the magazine, please do. I will put the, the Financial Transformation magazine. Um, I'll pop the links into the show notes. Um, I'll also pop in the links to the financial transformation live sessions that we're we're running on LinkedIn, um, and and any other of the content that we've talked about today, we'll pop that in the show notes as well. So, thank you so Brilliant. much, Michael. I'm, I can't wait for our next one. <laughs> we should do it tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> we should. Take care, guys. I'll be speaking to you soon. All, right. All the best.